You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany sermon series, Finished, The End of the World and Our Way of Living in It. In this series, we see that the powers and principalities of this world are finished, and our depraved way of living in this world is finished. Christ leads us into a new way of being human, and eventually, an entirely new creation. Now hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 26, 30 through 46. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. On the way, Jesus told them, Tonight all of you will desert me, for the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter declared, Even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter. This very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times that you have even known me. No, Peter insisted. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the same. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, Sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John. He became anguished and distressed. He told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed. My father, if this cup cannot be taken away, Unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So we went to pray a third time, saying the same thing again. Then he came to the disciples and said, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It is good to see you guys. Uh, My name is Jonah, and I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Welcome. Welcome to everyone who's watching at home. Um, Our our passage before us this morning um, has come to be, for me at least, I think the most heart-wrenching of Christ's passion. That's, that's his journey to the cross, to his, his execution. Um, it's, you know, frankly, it's probably become the saddest chunk of Scripture in all of Matthew's gospel for me. Uh, on, the, on the one hand, if you remember last week, we talked about the Last Supper, and that scene ends, or our text this morning begins with singing. They have the Last Supper, and then the disciples sing a hymn after celebrating the first Lord's Supper. And there's a part of me that tries to imagine what would it be like to be in a room having just finished a holy, significant dinner with Jesus, and then we're singing together. 
Um, you know, when we, we broke there for a second, you could hear everybody's voices. There's something sweet about that. And what would it have been like to hear the disciples joining in song together? But that song of praise gives way shortly after, immediately after, to the silence of betrayal and abandonment. How often we as Christ's disciples can shift from singing songs of worship on Sundays to lives of abandonment on Sunday afternoon. How often do we sound right or say right but betray Christ by our lives? There is no violence in this text, but there is blood. There are no soldiers yet, but there is betrayal. There is no physical pain, but there is suffering. And the suffering begins almost as soon as the singing stops. You have to remember that what we're talking about this morning comes right on the heels of the Last Supper and the disciples singing and worship him with Jesus. Immediately after this meal, Jesus informs the disciples that he will be killed. The disciples will scatter, and then Jesus will rise. And he tells Peter he will deny even knowing Jesus. In verse 35, Peter shouts back, No, he insisted, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the same. Doesn't that sound so holy? Doesn't that sound so spiritual and impressive? You may remember from last week, we talked about in the Lord's Supper, Jesus' warning that one of you will betray me, that there was an invitation in there to greater self-examination in the disciples, and by extension, us. A greater posture of humility to see what might be lurking in the places of our hearts we don't want to see. Perhaps our own tendency to self-deception, our tendency to see ourselves as better than we, we truly are. Jesus called the disciples to greater self-examination. And, and here, well, really in a few moments, we'll see that that warning was well warranted. Jesus asks his friends to sit down, and then he invites three of them to go and pray with him, which these are the disciples, right? If you've ever been to Rome, there are 20-foot-tall statues of these men. These are the disciples of Jesus, who are building a religion, right? They're starting Christianity. And what is the big ask Jesus has for them? Would you pray with me? His closest friends, would you come and would you pray with me? What a simple request the Lord has on this, perhaps the longest night of his life. But watch what happens. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. What has happened? What has happened in verse 37? He asks his friends to pray. And somewhere between leaving some of the disciples sitting down to walking into a garden to pray, Jesus is suddenly saying, I'm experiencing something that feels like death. 
my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Can you feel the intensity of that? The weight of that? Can you see the vulnerability in his request? Stay with me. I feel like I'm dying. Stay and watch with me. I feel like I'm dying. Help me. Something has happened in verse 37. Something that feels like it's going to kill him even before he gets to the cross. What is it? Well, Jesus begins to pray. Listen to what he prays for. He went on a little farther and bowed his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. We have to think very carefully here. What is Jesus praying for? What is the suffering he's currently experiencing right here? He says, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. What is he facing right here? And it can't simply be his death. He has been crystal clear from throughout his ministry that he had to die. Just before this, he told his disciples he had to die. Shortly before that, he praises a woman for anointing his body for burial. Throughout his ministry, he has said he must die. It's not as though Jesus decides to go to the garden to pray and suddenly realizes he has to die. He turns to his father to pray, and he finds a cup of suffering. He finds something far worse than he expected. He prays for this cup, something he's bearing right here in this moment. He's not talking about the crucifixion here. He's not talking about some new information about his death. There's something else going on. There is something else that Jesus is experiencing in the garden. The cup is an image that's used frequently in the Bible, both positively and negatively. In the ancient world, executions were often done by forcing someone to drink a cup of poison essentially tearing the person apart from the inside. They would watch somebody suffer as they look okay on the outside, but inside are, they're basically torn to pieces. This is how Socrates was executed. It was a common way to execute people. The prophets, the Old Testament prophets, took up this imagery. You'll often find the imagery of the cup being one of the primary metaphors of God's judgment, the wrath of God, the terror the tear you apart from the inside consequences of sin and rebellion. This cup that Jesus is praying to pass is the judicial wrath of God. The cup of God's judgment that's been stored up to be poured out on human evil. Jesus knew he was going to die, but now he is experiencing the cup of God's wrath. He turns to his father for a moment of solace. As he knows, his time has grown incredibly short. And what does he find instead? The cup of the wrath of God. Luke's gospel records a heart-wrenching detail for us from this scene. 
It says he prayed more fervently. He was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. When your body is experiencing profound anxiety, your sweat glands can burst and you literally sweat blood. This is the level of anguish that Jesus is facing. This is the terror that he's enduring. He came to experience the heavenly peace of his father and instead he's facing the hellish torment of judgment. Have you ever wondered why so many of Jesus's followers died better than he did? Do you know what I mean by that? Jesus is in a garden sweating drops of blood, begging for another way. And then we have all of these stories throughout history of men being burned alive and they say, my death will light a great torch in all of England, or men and women singing as they're put to death in the name of Jesus, prisoners leading others to faith in Christ while they're waiting their execution. We have all of these stories of great Christian men and women dying for Jesus' sake with confidence and strength. And here we have Jesus sweating drops of blood. Why would so many of his followers die better than he did, it seems? Why is Jesus dying this way with such anguish? Because no one else had to drink this cup. No one else in all of human history has had to face the cup of God's judgment against human sin. Since the garden, the garden of Eden, the inclination of the human heart has been to turn away from God. You know this is true in your life because you resist the clear commands of God. Did you resonate at all with the prayer or the piece of Romans 7 that was read for us in the liturgy? You know what you should do and you refuse to do it. Have you noticed that in your own life? We all are inclined to turn. So many of us get defensive and angry when the clear commands of God come and correct us. We do not want to obey. We do not want to listen. We do not want God or anyone else these days telling us what to do. So what do we do? We turn away. The judgment of God in the scriptures is so often simply giving people what they wish. They wish to turn away. So in the judgment of God, God turns away. Paul would later describe God's judgment this way in 2 Thessalonians. They will be punished with eternal destruction, listen, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. What does this eternal destruction look like? Forever separated from the Lord. Forever separated from his eternal power and his glory and his goodness. In the garden, as he's facing the cup of the wrath of God, Jesus is experiencing his father turning away. He's not sweating blood from anguish of body. He's sweating blood from anguish of soul. The experience of his father turning away feels like death to Jesus. The eternal son, the second member of the the Trinity in inseparable communion with the father from eternity past is experiencing his father turning away. And he feels like he's going to die. So what does he do? 
what would you do in moments of extreme anxiety and grief and pain and suffering? Jesus turned to his friends. Remember the guys that had lived with him for years, walked with him, ate with him, watched him perform miracles, done ministry with him. Look what he finds. He returned to the disciples and found them asleep. Try to imagine everything he's carrying. Try to imagine the voice of Christ saying this now. He said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? The most horrific, the most horrific hour of his life, Jesus finds his disciples asleep. The ones that he let in, the ones he entrusted himself into, they're asleep. Have you ever felt that kind of betrayal? Have you ever woke up one day to learn that your closest relationships were all one-sided? Jesus has given everything to these men. Purpose, healing, teaching, grace. And they sleep when he needs them the most. Could you watch with me for one hour? You can feel his heart breaking. So Jesus goes back and prays again. He left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. And when he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. Again, the cup, he's experiencing the weight of sin. He's experiencing God's judgment of separation. And again, he finds his friends letting him down even after his heartfelt plea. So with anguish in his soul, Christ, as the prophet Isaiah would describe him, set his face like flint and begins drinking his cup. Christ will face the separation from God that the nations deserve, that we deserve. He will face anguish of soul and soon anguish of body, carrying the full weight of sin. He will drink the cup of God's wrath to its dregs, and he will do so surrounded by those who could not stay awake, who will soon scatter in denial and fear. The celebratory night of great forgiveness we looked at last week through the Lord's Supper has become now the night of great denial. And our Lord, with bloody sweat on his brow, goes willingly Jesus was the only one unworthy to drink the cup. He didn't deserve this. He had not turned from the Father. He was not a rebel or a lawbreaker. And yet the innocent one, the Lamb of God, alone, abandoned, and now betrayed, goes from here to receive the remaining judgment of God in our place. That's the Garden of Gethsemane. As, as dark as this night is, as sad and heartbreaking as it is, there are, two, there are two realities in this story that maybe it may be too strong to say they give me hope. They're so beautiful as to be almost bewildering to me. And in that way, they give me 
they do give me great hope. The first reality that I have such a hard time, I know it's true, I just really wrestle with what all must it mean. The first reality is that Jesus chose these disciples. Do you remember this? At one point, he'll say plainly to them, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Jesus is no fool. He chose those who would go from singing to sleeping. He chose those who would betray, deny, doubt, and abandon. God, in his infinite wisdom, chose those who thought too much of themselves and far too little of Christ. It's a word of hope to me because it means that though he is heartbroken, he is not surprised. And it's a word of hope because if he would choose men like this, he could choose a man like me. If he would choose men like this, he could choose people like us. I mean, just have you seen how wildly inconsistent you've been this year? Am I the only one who's been faced that I can talk better than I can live? I believe better than I love. The word of hope is that the wide open arms of Christ have made room for people like us. In other words, do not look to your worthiness to know if you are loved by God. If you're at home and watching this, you've never been to church and you find yourself on a random Facebook feed, do not look to your worthiness or your life to know if you could be one loved by God. Do not look to your past what you've done or what you've left undone. Do not look to your failed promises or your sleepy nights where you bailed on the Lord. If you want to know if there is room for you in the family of God, you must look to Christ. He has made room for you, just as he made room for these disciples whom he chose. The second word of hope comes after Jesus prays a third time. Verses 44 and 46. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. Then he came to the disciples and said, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Leave that up there for a second. So, the disciples have failed him a third time. Jesus says, rest up, fellas. The time is upon him. Despite being betrayed now, what does he say? Someone read that last, that last sentence. Starts with up. Good try, guys. I know, it's a heavy sermon. Let's do some grammar here. Let's. What is that, what is that a contraction of? What two words are there? Let us, us, second person plural, right? Is that right? It's plural. Us is plural, which means more than one person. Who is the us he's talking about? It's not a trick, his disciples. After all of the betrayal, after all the denial, after all of the failure, 
Jesus looks to his sleepy friends and somehow still manages to call them an us. You see that? Despite being betrayed, he doesn't say, how dare you, I'll do this myself. He doesn't say, how could you? I never want to see you again. He looks at his sleepy friends and he says, let us be going. Despite our betrayals and denials, Christ still looks to you and I and he says, we are in us. We are still his. He still holds us. If Christ remains steady here, if he remains resolute here, all will be well. By drinking this cup of God's wrath, Jesus transforms it into a cup of life. All will be well because the horror of the cup of God's judgment and wrath will be overcome by the bearer of that cup. He forgives his friends and invites them to continue with him. Despite our failures, he invites us to get up and go with him. And so for those who trust in Christ, the cup of wrath has become for us the cup of life because it's no longer a symbol of wrath and judgment, but for us it is now a symbol of grace and mercy and love. And so we call our minds again to the night that Jesus was betrayed this very night. He took a loaf of bread. He blessed it and he thanked God for it. He broke it. And he said to his disciples, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, when the meal was over, he took a cup of wine. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant, which seals your relationship with God through the shedding of my blood. Drink this as often as you gather in remembrance of me. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.